Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. I wonder whether anybody this morning is excited about anything that's coming up. Are you excited about anything, Bobby? Do you want to tell me what it is? Going to the campsite. Going to the campsite? Wow. Okay, when are you doing that? Wow, you're excited because you're going to a campsite. Amazing. Anyone else excited about anything? No one else. Benj is excited. You look excited, Benj. You're excited about Christmas. Okay, okay. Don't start the Christmas countdown. It's the 4th of August. Yeah, Wendy's excited. You're going to see Adam in France. Wonderful. Okay. Tell you, I, I'm excited because we're going away this week and um, we're going to France as well. And we are going to see Naomi and Lockie, that's my daughter and son in law. We've not seen them for a couple of years, so I'm really excited. Yeah. So there are lots of things that we can be excited about, aren't there? I wonder whether this morning, if I announced the next prayer meeting, you would feel excited. <laughs> But um, some, sometimes the prayer meeting doesn't always get a good press, does it? And um, I want to talk this morning about why do we do that, the prayer meeting. We're going to start a, a series in the autumn called Why Do We Do That? And it will give us the opportunity to talk about some of our fundamental teachings, some of our fundamental doctrine, and just revisit some of the things that, that we make a point of doing that it's important to know why do we actually bother to do that? And it's just an opportunity as well for us to remain envisioned together, you know, on the same page, all joined up. That's a good thing, isn't it? And I've jumped the gun a little bit in that um, I, I was part of the discussion that talked about this teaching series in the autumn, and I, I started thinking and uh, ended up with something that I wanted to share today. So this, think of this as a trailer <laughs> for, for what's coming in the autumn time. What I'm not going to do this morning is bring an in-depth study on the subject of prayer because actually that could take us weeks and there is so much to explore. But I do want to bring a short and a simple encouragement for us all to be stirred to pray together and to understand the necessity of of doing that as we fulfil the mission that God has given to us, that is to go and make disciples. Yeah. That's our mission. So I've got, I've got four simple points today, four simple things I want to share with you, which I think will, or hope will, stir us and encourage us when it comes to us thinking about being together to pray, and particularly to pray for the town. So here's the first thing. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 21. The words will actually be on the screen, but I don't want you to get bored, you see, so I've given you something to do. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 21. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. So Matthew 21, starting at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers 
and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And that's an account in the scripture which we're all probably quite familiar with. Jesus entering the temple and being confronted by the sights and the sounds and the smells of all the religious activity that was going on in front of him. The sale of animals to be sacrificed. The booths for worshippers to convert their own currencies into, um, into the Jewish currency, the shekel, in order to pay the half shekel temple tax. And Jesus sees, sees all this re- religious activity, people going through motions, and he's filled with a righteous indignation. The religious activity is not what God wants at all. And quoting from Isaiah 56, Jesus says, The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, you know, Jesus could have described the temple in lots of different ways, couldn't he? He could have said, my temple is a house of worship, it's a house of praise. He could have said, my temple is a, na- is a place where the name of God is revered and honoured. But what he chose to say was, my father says the temple is a house of prayer. And because he chose so carefully the words that he used at that time, we should pay very careful notice to what he means by that. My temple. The place where God dwells. Let's have a quick turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And what I want you to do as well as we read this If you're not going to read out of the Bible, close your eyes and imagine the scene. Okay? Imagine all the um, special effects that you can, all the things you've seen in the movies. Let's try and imagine them as we imagine this scene because it is the most awesome thing I think any of us could ever imagine seeing ourselves. So 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 to 3, it says this, When Solomon finished praying, so... This is at the time when Solomon has built this magnificent temple of bricks and mortar and gold and silver. Do you remember a few weeks ago we were talking about all the stuff they collected to build this temple and it was enormous quantities of precious metals and just so vast. It's all been done and they're praying to give thanks to the temple and God then speaks to Solomon. And um, it says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Can you imagine? The priests could not enter the temple because, sorry, the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. Can you imagine being an onlooker on that day? And there you are, you've been to a a gathering to give thanks for this new temple and all of a sudden there's a sacrifice on the altar and it's not burning and all of a sudden it's and the glory of the Lord settles on the temple 
How awesome would that be? A few years ago, God gave me a dream. And uh, it was really important to me at the time. It really is still important to me right now. And he showed me the glory of Jesus in this dream. I didn't see Jesus. I saw his glory. It was awesome. And that was a dream. It was awesome. It's burnt into my mind. I'll never forget it. This was real. This wasn't a dream. This is something that happened. God literally presents himself in Solomon's temple. And you know, in the time since the Holy Spirit has been poured out, the scriptures tell us that the temple of God, the place where he dwells, is actually somewhere else entirely. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Did you know this morning that we together are that temple? What an amazing thing. We were just picturing a minute ago, weren't we, the glory of God in Solomon's temple. And yet the glory of God today resides in you and me. What an incredible truth. So there it is. We are the temple of God. And so let's go back to our first point, the house of prayer. To what degree can our lives together as the place where God dwells be described as a house of prayer. Jesus said it's really important. That's my first point. We are to be a house of prayer. Here's the second thing. Let's look at the example of Jesus. Jesus gave a very high priority to prayer, both an example and also in his teaching. If we look at a couple of slides coming up, We've got a few scriptures where we're told about Jesus excusing himself from what was going on and going off to be alone to pray. He went up a mountain, went to a quiet place. He went and spent the whole night in prayer. I've got another one, Des. Early morning, while it was still dark, he's committed. Yeah. And it says Jesus would often slip away and spend time before his Father in heaven. And his disciples, seeing his practice and hearing his teaching, would um, ask Jesus to teach them to pray. They saw his disciplined life before the Father. They realised the truth of what he spoke about, um, about prayer. And they actually said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And they seem to have learned well, these disciples of Jesus, because in the book of Acts, those same disciples who are now the first apostles in the church are setting a pattern among the believers of constant prayer. The book of Acts doesn't speak about a weekly or a monthly um, corporate prayer meeting. 
but it does describe how believers came together regularly to pray, and often in times of trouble, and they would see God move as a result of their prayers. In fact, I believe the book of Acts describes an early church who were devoted prayers in the private and powerful prayers in the corporate, in the altogether. And you know, we can bring to our altogether times of prayer, our corporate times of prayer, what we have have learned ourselves in the quiet place when we're alone with God, something we can develop within our spirit. So we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all met together. They were constantly united in prayer. Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together. Acts 3, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. Acts 4, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And Acts chapter 12 It says that Peter went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where where many were gathered together for prayer. If you read, go home and read that last account in in Acts 12, what had happened is Peter had been in jail and an angel appeared to him and busted him out of jail. He was really heavily guarded. And so he didn't know where to go and thought, I'm going to go to where the believers are. And they were praying that Peter would be busted out of jail. And he turned up at the door and he knocked on the door and someone came to answer the door. Oh, and she ran off and said, it's Peter at the door and didn't even let him in. <laughs> she was so shocked to see him. But the believers were gathered to pray and at the same time, God was answering their prayer. It's an amazing account. You should go and read it. Yeah. It's, it talks of God's great power and it's also really funny. So you should, uh, you should have a look. Regular times of the church coming together to pray was a feature of the early church. They were fully reliant upon God and devoted to prayer in order to fulfil the mission God had given them. And that mission was? To go and make disciples. Okay. And have we mentioned that phrase already this morning? Yeah, because that's also our mission, isn't it? As we read the scripture, we can apply the promises and the commands that Jesus gave to the first disciples to ourselves as well, 2,000 years later. Our mission is to go and make disciples. They saw their corporate prayer times as absolutely vital to the mission to go and make disciples. I was uh, challenged recently, I'm challenged by all of this myself, and I was challenged recently because I read in a book by a gentleman called Francis Chan, he wrote a book called Letters to the Church, and uh, he writes this, he said, would you say that prayer plays any meaningful role in the life of your church? If prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church isn't vital. That statement may be bold, but I believe it's true. If you can accomplish your church's mission without daily, passionate prayer, then your mission is insufficient and your church is irrelevant. Ouch. Is anyone feeling the the sharp challenge? Yeah? You know, we can be really good at doing stuff, can't we? Yeah, we can we can organize a social event. We can put on a Christmas fair. We can, um, we, we can organise a Sunday morning meeting like this. Yeah. 
But actually, if our eye is not on the mission, and because our mission needs to be fueled by prayer, we need to ask the Holy Spirit what he wants us to do. If we're not doing that, all the stuff which we can spend all our time doing is completely irrelevant. Our mission needs to be fueled by constant prayer. That's my second point. Here's my third point. We can learn to pray together. So what should happen, do you think, when the church gathers together to pray? Well, primarily, totally, we just need to know that we are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Anything else we do when we meet together to pray comes a long, long, long way down the list after being prepared to be completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. God tells us something through what Paul wrote in Romans 8. He said this, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Here's some encouragement. Have you ever been at a prayer meeting and you don't really know what to pray? Don't worry about that. God knows that. In fact, he tells you, you don't really know any of us what to pray at the prayer meeting. We all need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. But he will show us. When we come to the prayer meeting, we don't need to be ready to be eloquent. Uh, We don't need to be long-winded. We don't need to be stylish in any way. Rather, we need to turn up. (laughs) Expecting that as we open our mouths, the Holy Spirit will show us what to say. And knowing that our prayers, however simple and however feeble and however faltering we may think they sound, they're delivered to the throne room of grace (laughs) with the Holy Spirit as our divine translator. Even the simplest cry of our heart, badly expressed in human terms, is translated, transferred to as weighty a prayer as anyone ever prays before God. Because we have the Holy Spirit helping us. What great encouragement for those of us who ever get to a prayer meeting and think, I don't know quite what to pray. It might all come out wrong. What if I end up feeling a little bit embarrassed? Yeah. God says, well, none of you know what to pray. You all need the Holy Spirit to help. We mustn't consider the phrase praying in the Spirit to only refer to speaking in tongues. Although it does refer to speaking in tongues, but it's much wider a definition than that. We can pray in the Spirit in our native language, in faith and aided by the Holy Spirit of God. We can allow the Holy Spirit to, in this really old-fashioned phrase that we read in the King James Version of the Bible, we can rely on the Holy Spirit to give us utterance. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about how on the day of Pentecost, the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and they start to speak in tongues and it says as God gave them utterance or in our modern version as he gave them this ability 
Yeah? God can give us this ability, he can give us this utterance, the ability to, to pray in a way which is meaningful and has great weight before the Father in heaven by the Holy Spirit in, the, in our natural language, in our native language. We can all pray in the Spirit at a prayer meeting. That's great, isn't it? And that means that when Spirit-filled followers of Jesus gather together to pray, we can all take part in great confidence that there's absolutely no difference at all in the weightiness of our prayers. You know, as parents, we would be really devastated if our own children wanted to talk to us about an issue that was important to them, a big deal to them, but kept putting it off because they felt unworthy or were afraid of being ridiculed or because they were nervous of being overheard. And it would be really tragic, wouldn't it, if our own children didn't dare open their mouths to come and bring us a request because um, they were frightened they might get their words slightly wrong. You know, our Heavenly Father likes nothing more than his children coming to him and speaking to him. We can do that with great confidence. We don't have to wait until, until we feel right so everything in our lives is aligned and perfect. <laughs> we can come to him as we are. In the confidence that the Holy Spirit will bring our faltering words and present them in the throne room of all grace. How wonderful is that? Practically, when we gather together to pray, we often start by acknowledging the greatness of God. Giving him thanks. Praising his name. Being confident in our access to him and his willingness to hear our prayers. Psalm 104, we know it well, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise and give thanks to him and praise his name. And you know, it can be really good, vital, I believe, at the start of times when we are entering into God's presence together in this way, to keep our eyes and our focus firmly on God, on his might and his power, on his majesty, on his greatness, and, you know, that keeps us being overcome by the size of our problems and our challenges. Keep an eye on the one who we bring our prayers to, the one who is all-sufficient with any need that we put in front of him. And having reminded ourselves of God's power and greatness, we can start to bring our, our requests, our intercessions, our believing prayers, our prayers that we bring full of faith because we know who it is we're coming to. And, you know, sometimes one person might pray and the rest of us just bring a loud amen because we agree. And at other times we may pray together in smaller groups. And even sometimes we might just all raise our voices and pray together. But praying in this way is different from those times when we're praying at home, on our own. It's a different dynamic. As together we can bring a shared passion to see the kingdom of God come in evidence all around us, to see people turn to him for salvation, and to see God's name honoured. And when we have been gathering together in Market Harbour to pray this year, our focus has been, we're going to pray for the town. Yeah. We want to see Market Harbour as a name, as a place where the name of Jesus is honoured and revered above all else. Yeah. Do you remember we were saying, we want to see a Market Harbour as a place where the name of Jesus is literally the talk of this town. And whilst we can pray these prayers in our private, when we come together all together and just exhibit together a shared passion for these things, I believe there is real power in that. And far from being a quiet time of reflection, 
because we can have quiet times of reflection when we're on our own. Our times of prayer together can be vibrant. That's okay. They can be lively and they can be noisy. And above all, faith-filled times in the presence of God. Times of prayer together should never be boring. Never be boring. I want to go off at a slight tangent here because I know that many of us, myself included, will have grown up in places where times of corporate prayer were actually very quiet indeed. Let me, uh, let me just read to you a little bit I read in a book by a gentleman called Arthur Wallace, who many of us will know. And I'm sure that lots of us here can identify with his own experience. He writes in his book, The Radical Christian, I fully understand those who would like it quietly, without any emotion. When I first came into contact with the move of the spirit in the 1950s, I brought with me a solid Anglo-Saxon temperament, a sensitive disposition, and for good measure, a conservative evangelical background. Any real display of noise or emotion I found embarrassing. If anyone had suggested that we start a noise abatement society, I would have volunteered to be a foundation member. I had been in meetings where the noise had been worked up and where the enthusiasm was humanly ignited. But God had to teach me that my temperamental reserve and traditional conservatism was no more spiritual and no less carnal than noise that was out of the spirit. To allow my self-consciousness to rule my behaviour when God wanted to hear me clap or shout or make a joyful noise was equally unacceptable to him. We don't want to be a place where we hype up a response to God. That's not what we're about at all. But God is magnificent. He doesn't need any hype. He is his own hype. (laughs) And um, just as we've probably all been at some point or another in an environment where we've seen things hyped up and it makes us feel uncomfortable... I believe God is saying to us, it's equally uncomfortable if actually we should just be displaying a bit of our humanness in front of God. That's all it is. We are, we are a people who are expressive. Yeah. You know, if you go to a football match, you'll find 30,000 expressive people. If you go to Leicester City, sometimes they're really happy and more often they're just expressive. <laughs> But we are an expressive people. We clap and we dance and we cheer and we sing and we chant. It shouldn't be the case that as soon as we gather together, all of our humanness disappears. Doesn't make sense, does it? So I want to bring an encouragement to us this morning, not to manufacture enthusiasm, but to allow ourselves to be stirred by the Spirit and to be able to respond vocally. Just don't hold back. Yeah, I believe the enemy likes nothing more than believers who are able to praise good God because of what he's done, having their mouths clamped firmly shut because of fear or because of stoicism or Britishness or whatever you want to call it. We need to be overcomers of that. We can do that. We've all got a mouth, we've all got a tongue. (laughs) We We can all make a vocal response. Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. Yeah. You know, the scriptures say if anyone confesses that Jesus is Lord, yeah. he will be saved. Yeah. That can be our constant confession. Yeah. Jesus is Lord. That's my third point. Here's my last one, and it's a short one. The promise of God. God spoke again to Solomon shortly after the dedication of the temple, and he made Solomon and all of his people this following promise. He said, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That was a promise that was made to Solomon thousands of years ago. But I believe it is a promise that we today, in our day, in our time, can take hold of ourselves. Really take hold of ourselves. And I want to just tell you a few short, much abridged, true stories of how God has poured out his saving grace upon nations in response to men and women who have earnestly sought him in prayer. So the year is 1857 in New York. A gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. He's a city missionary and he was burdened by the need all around him. And he advertised a weekly prayer meeting. And on the first Wednesday in this room on Fulton Street in New York City. He was on his own for half an hour. And then six people showed up and they prayed with him. And the following week, 20 people showed up and prayed with him. And the following week, 40 people showed up and prayed with him. And within a few months, the economic times had changed in New York. There was a financial crisis. Within a few months, 10,000 people were meeting to pray together in multiple locations all across the city. What an amazing thing. Eventually, the dam broke. I'd written that down before Julian brought his word this morning. Eventually, the dam broke and floods of power led to more than a million people being added to the kingdom of God over the following three years. I was reading somebody modern who was just referring to that and um, they were saying, kind of put that in a modern context. It would be like eight or nine million people suddenly turning to God without any social media. That's the kind of, in a modern equivalent, in a denser population, that's what it would look like. What an amazing thing. All because of a prayer meeting. The God of the breakthrough. At about the same time in Northern Ireland, there were just four men who were stirred to begin a weekly prayer meeting. And as they started, they were buoyed by reports from New York, um, where they were in Northern Ireland. It was a trade, trading place between, uh, between Britain in Northern Ireland and America. They got to hear about what was going on in New York, about thousands of people crying out to God. And from these small beginnings, a million people were added to the kingdom of God across the British church. Wow. Amazing. And historical records show us how town prayer meetings began to multiply, sometimes gathering hundreds of believers. And then God broke through, and theatres and circus tents were employed to gather the vast crowds pressing in to hear the gospel. And often people were convicted of their sin without even being at one of these events. 
God spoke to them where they were. And they thought, we'd better go and find out where God's people are. And they went along in, in just a state of complete conviction by the Holy Spirit. And it began with a prayer meeting to the God of the breakthrough. And similar things took place in Wales in 1905, where there was a revival and over 100,000 people were swept into the kingdom of God. And in the Hebrides in 1949, where a minister began to spend just two days a week praying with some faithful members of his congregation. And one night it was reported that a power was let loose that shook the Hebrides. And on the final night of the mission of a man named Duncan Campbell, he pronounced a benediction but was amazed to discover a crowd appearing at the door of the church, pressing into the church and crying to God for mercy, convicted where they were. And yet come to find God and come to find God's people. Whole families were transformed. Later it was testified the entire island was aware of God and it seemed as if the very air was electrified with the Spirit of God. And it all began in a prayer meeting, praying to the God of the breakthrough. And come on. See, we look today, don't we, at our own society. We look at our town, look at our nation, look at our national media. We see a nation far from God. Don't our hearts cry out to God? Doesn't everything within us cry, Lord, come? Just madness around us. Can we feel the Holy Spirit stir us, give us a yearning to see a nation change, give us a yearning to see our families and our friends come to Christ? Knowing salvation, knowing eternal hope. And can we, here in this town, in 2019 and far, far beyond, be a people committed to, to together Seeking the face of God in prayer. God will pour out his spirit where he chooses. But we can earnestly seek his face. Just as men and women in the past have earnestly sought the face of God in their own times. So this promise of God, it's true for us today. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.